Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Mac Nutrition, and the Mac Nutrition Universal Certification. The MNU certification is fast becoming the gold standard when it comes to nutritional knowledge in the health and fitness industry. It's a 12-month, 100% evidence-based online nutrition course that can be completed alongside full-time work from anywhere in the world, and it qualifies you to be insured to practice as a nutritionist in over 25 countries around the world. You can also get a generous 90% off the enrollment fee using the coupon code LEANNE90. This week, we welcome back one of our favorite gastroenterologists, Dr. Will Borswick, or as we call him, Dr. B. If you haven't heard the previous episodes with Dr. B, he will blow your socks off. So please scroll back in the podcast back catalog to listen to episodes 9, 13, 55, and 56 with Dr. B. On today's episode, we chat all things food sensitivities, but more specifically, we go through the fiber paradox, what food sensitivities and intolerances are. We discuss SIBO, histamine intolerances, and food intolerance testing kits. We also talk about how to train our gut and how to increase our tolerance to certain foods. I know you guys are going to love this episode, so please share it with your family and friends and anyone else you think that would benefit from some good quality evidence-based nutrition advice. Now, here's Dr. B. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. B. It is very exciting to have you back on again. It's great to be here, Leanne. I'm very excited. Um, It's really amazing how much our lives can change in such a short period of time. And so I have been, you know, it's one of the things I like about the internet is that you and I can be friends from the opposite sides of the planet. And I've enjoyed watching you, you know, cultivate, grow your family, and you're entering into a very exciting phase in your life. Uh, It's a big transition. And simultaneously for me, I'm a couple years ahead uh, and we're about to have our third. And also I've made like major career changes and this is my second book coming out. And my first book, I didn't know what was going to happen, but it sold 200,000 copies. It's been crazy. That's awesome. So I'm really excited to be here to talk to you and pick back up. Yeah. And if you guys are uh, regular listeners of the podcast, you would know that um, Will or Dr. B, as we affectionately like to call him, has been on the potty many times before. So we had him very early on when we launched the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. We had him at episode 9 and 13 and also episode 55 and 56. So we're very, very fortunate to have him back on. And today's topics we're going to discuss, Dr. B, is all really about food sensitivities. So I really want to dive right in. If you guys want to get, I guess, a baseline knowledge of what is good gut health, what should we be doing, what does gut health mean, go back and listen to the potties we did, the earlier ones with Dr. B. I promise you, he will absolutely blow your mind. But today we're really going to be talking about food sensitivities and what that means um, in terms of our body and our symptoms. So let's kick off, Dr. B. In your book, you mentioned something about the fiber paradox. And I feel like this is an important topic because I think now in 2022, a lot of people understand how important fiber is and getting that diversity in. I hope a lot of people are starting to understand more, but what does this concept of the fiber paradox actually mean? Well, I think the fiber paradox is me stepping forward and saying it's time that we keep it real about nutrition. Nutrition is nuanced. 
nutrition is not just like creating simple rules that everyone applies to their life and it's all going to go easy and never have any challenges. Every single one of us has a completely distinct, completely personal gut microbiome. That gut microbiome was developed by the diet that you've been eating over the last year. It's actually designed to help you to function with your current diet. And if you're going to make a change and you're going to shift towards more fiber, you are actually challenging your gut. And it could unmask problems that exist that perhaps you don't even realize they're there. I want people to understand that the fiber is not the problem. The fiber is just unmasking the problem that's hiding there. And it's, it's there. It needs to be healed. So the fiber paradox is that the person who needs fiber the most in their life, in their diet, because fiber is so good for our gut microbiome, so good at healing and strengthening and fortifying our gut, that person is also the person who is most likely to struggle to increase the fiber in their diet. And so this is part of me bringing forward this level of nuance so that the individual person can be empowered to understand what's happening with their body because you could easily misinterpret the signals. And if you're following an intuitive approach, I actually, by the way, believe that we need intuition in many cases, but we also need to be smart enough to recognize that sometimes an intuitive approach can walk us into a trap and not actually be the right choice. And this is one of those moments. When you increase the fiber in your diet, if you have a damaged gut, it isn't necessarily going to just be easy, but you're doing it because this is right. This is the right thing, not only for your gut health, but also in your complete total body health in terms of longevity and reducing your risk of disease. Yeah. It's almost like that short-term pain, long-term gain. <laughs> so I'm not here to tell you that you need to just like tough it out and suffer and be miserable. Like this is not what this is not what I'm in the business of. I'm in the business of improving your quality of life and you finding tremendous joy in the food that you eat. But to me, when you're scared of food, there is not joy. When you are running away from food that you think is your food monster, that's, that's food fear. That's anxiety. That's not fun. And the issue is that these foods that we believe to be our enemies can actually be our friends. We're not under any obligation to continue to keep them as our enemy. It's a choice. And the choice is, do you want to heal your gut, make it stronger, adapt it to a different diet, make it capable of things that you didn't think it was capable of? If that's the choice that you want to make, I can tell you right now that you can accomplish that. And it's just a matter of being perseverant. But on the flip side, if you never want to feel pain, it's kind of hard to heal the gut because part of that process, we're going to try to minimize it. Hopefully there's none, but there may be some discomfort in that process. And that's just like trying to heal your knee if you twist your knee and you hurt it, you want to overcome that injury. It's going to require you to work through a process to heal the knee so that you can get back to a place where there is no pain and you're playing sports again and you're not restricted anymore. Mm, I love that analogy. And this was very much me in my past. Before we jumped onto the potty, I was saying that my, I guess, gut health sensitivities and intolerances all began. I got my IBS after I went to Bali, like many Aussies when I was I think maybe 18, 19 or 20, very young, uh, with some girlfriends and came back and I got post-infective IBS. And my gut after that was never the same. And foods that I used to love, I couldn't really eat anymore. It was all the healthy foods as well. And I remember going through uni thinking, how is this possible? I eat so well and I'm constantly bloated. I'm constantly gassy. I'm constantly in pain because my gut microbiome was just so off. So I feel like, and we were chatting about this just before we jumped on the potty, Dr. B, where generally in our practice, we'll see two types of people. One, their diet is 
let's be honest, pretty shocking. And we're sort of like, well, we could, you know, we need to change basically everything because there's too much processed foods, there's tons of sugar, there's lots of, you know, um, alcohol, coffee, that sort of thing. And then there's the other 50% of people where they're eating really, really well. And you sort of look at their diet and you're like, I can't really change much because you're doing wonderfully, but you're having all of these symptoms. Why is that? Yeah. I, through the years, Leanne, have um, started to uh, accumulate patients who kind of are not getting the results they're looking for with other doctors. And so they discover me and they seek me out. And these people, many times they would do everything right, eat the right food, sleep, exercise, meditate, do yoga, still not where they want to be. And I think that there's complexity to um, the body and understanding how to approach this. One of the things that I do in the Fiberfield Cookbook, my new book, so first of all, let me say, we'll, we'll talk about it later, but the Fiberfield Cookbook is actually far more than a, a cookbook. The, the recipes don't even start until the back end of chapter four. And really what I'm doing in this book is I'm trying to teach people, I want to put you inside my brain and I want to empower you with information so that you're not like just wholly reliant on a broken healthcare system, but instead you can be proactive in the choices that you make in your life, not only in how you engage with healthcare, but also the dietary choices that you make that hopefully will take you to a better place. And in the book, I bring forward my step-by-step -step protocol using the acronym GROWTH, G-R-O-W-T-H. Now, perhaps we'll get into some of these things, but I want to start off and I wanted to mention the letter G, which stands for Genesis. Like, what is the root cause of the problem? Do we actually understand what we are treating? Because at the end of the day, my ability as a gastroenterologist to treat or your ability as a dietitian, Leanne, is completely contingent on first knowing what we are actually treating. If not, we are just throwing stuff up against the wall and hoping that it'll stick. And sometimes you get lucky and that's great when you do. But the problem is that what, what happens when the symptoms come back, you still don't really completely understand what you're treating. You're going to get lucky again. We need to understand this. This is how we create targeted strategies. So when it comes down to this, Leanne, the first question in my mind as a gastroenterologist is, what am I treating? Now, you have brought forward generously your own personal journey, which was post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome, but I've seen many other different types of issues that exist. And sometimes there are diagnoses that we discover that did not exist 10 years ago when a person was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome. By the way, I'm not saying this is actually you, Leanne. I just want to be clear because I, I don't want the story to somehow be confounded as being your story. I have had patients where they get diagnosed, you know, like 2006 with IBS and they've been to six doctors and they show up in my clinic and they say, Dr. B, every time I eat, I get gas, I get bloating, I get diarrhea. And you look and every single doctor treated this patient for IBS. And I say to the patient, have you had a sucrase breath test? Yeah. <laughs> they say, no, I've never had that. What is that? Well, there's this new diagnosis, sucrose intolerance. Sucrose intolerance is something that you can be born with. It's a condition called CSID, congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but really what that means is that your body struggles to process table sugar. Table sugar is everywhere. It's in like almost all processed foods. But guess what? Table sugar is also in really healthy foods that I want you to eat. Beets and sweet potatoes and lots of fruit. And when a person has this enzyme deficiency, they can't process the table sugar. So they get gas, they get bloating, and they may have diarrhea. And if you have it and we identify it, there's actually a super easy treatment for that. So in this patient, Leanne, who had IBS for more than 10 years and had been to like six doctors and had failed IBS treatment with all of them, part of the issue from the very beginning was that she was improperly diagnosed. 
She never had IBS. She had as congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency. We identified it with a non-invasive breath test. I put her on an enzyme supplement that she took with meals, and her symptoms went away entirely. She had zero symptoms when we were done. Now, that's just one anecdote. That's just one example. Like, Leanne, your story would be very different. But I think that this, this is really not intended to say, oh, it's the CSID and sucrase isomaltase deficiency, that this is what everyone needs to know. Instead, this is intended to illustrate that the first step on your journey to healing is not actually stepping towards the healing, but instead taking a moment to identify what is the actual problem before you start to take any steps. Don't treat until you know what you're actually treating. I love that. And we always used to say when I used to work with a gastroenterologist, we eliminate all of the red flags first. So we make sure they don't have celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease. We make sure that there's nothing else going on from that medical perspective, because unfortunately, one of those diagnoses of IBS, which a lot of people get left with at the end, sort of feels like a bit of a slap in the face. But it's almost like it's a good thing because you're like, well, there's actually nothing medically wrong with you. Now we can do some of the work in terms of the healing. But I think it's a really important point that if people listening were, you know, had that diagnosis of IBS 5, 10 plus years ago, it is a great time to link in with a new practitioner, get some extra testing done because modern medicine has come a long, long way, particularly in the gut health field in the last five or 10 years, hasn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of interesting because I was thinking about this. They've done studies. So people ask like, why is gut health not you know commonly used in the routine doctor's office? We can talk and unpack this question more if you want to, Leanne. But part of the issue is that They've studied this and they've discovered that it takes about 17 years from the time that a paper is published for it actually to become commonplace in medical practices. So now that's interesting because it's 2022. So if we go back 17 years, that takes us to 2005. We are functioning in a 2005 healthcare environment. Uh, It's like, you know, back to the future. And simultaneously, we didn't really discover anything about the gut microbiome until 2006. Maybe next year will be the year that we start using gut health tools, but we're not there yet. I really hope so. I really do hope so. (laughs) And honestly, I would love to unpack that further, but I know a lot of our listeners have come for the food sensitivities. So let's dive right in. And I think we probably need to start with the basics. What does having a food sensitivity mean? Is it something that everybody has? Is it something that only a select few people have? And how do we diagnose a food sensitivity? All right. So um, we think about 20% of people have food sensitivities and food sensitivity is when you consume a food in normal quantities. I mean, like, let's, let's just keep it real. If I drink a gallon of milk, I will have diarrhea. And so will you. And so will everyone else. That's not lactose intolerance because no one in their right mind should try to drink a gallon of milk all at once. <laughs> Flip side, if I have a glass of milk, that is a normal quantity for a single serving. And statistically speaking, 70% of the globe will have some unpleasant symptoms that follow after that. And it could fall on a spectrum. Could be a very minor thing, like just a little bit of stomach gurgling and maybe just a little discomfort, nothing major. But it could be more intense, more severe. It could be a lot of gas, a lot of bloating, perhaps diarrhea, uh, perhaps cramping abdominal pain that comes in waves. It depends on the individual. Our response to food is very individual. This is part of the reason why it's very important to say there are many paths to human health and we are unique individuals. And we ultimately have to find what works for us. This is part of the motivation behind my involvement in a personalized nutrition company. And one of the things that I want to be very clear about is that I sometimes feel, I don't know if you feel this way, Leanne, and I don't know if your listeners feel this way. I've been on the show now a couple of times, but 
I sometimes feel like people misinterpret me as being here to sell the diet that I personally thrive on myself. And that's not actually the case. I instead want you to find what works for you. And I expect that it will be different than the diet that I eat for myself. I just want to give you the ground rules that you can use to shape in that journey to ultimately find joy in your food. When you have a food sensitivity, you're not having joy in your food. You eat food, it gives you unpleasant symptoms. So ultimately, our goal is to take this and move it to a place where it no longer exists. What's exciting about that is that that is possible. You can overcome food intolerances. But we should talk about the difference between a food intolerance versus a food allergy, because these are kind of the two branches of what we're describing here. Uh, let me start with a food allergy. So the word allergy in general, from a nerdy you know, doctor or medical perspective, basically means that your immune system is reacting to something from outside your body. So we think about like seasonal allergies or like pet dander, uh, the seasons change, there's more flowers, and then we get a runny nose or asthma. These are allergic diseases. Well, you could have a response of your immune system to food. In fact, there's certain specific foods that we have discovered account for basically 90% of food allergies. So I'm going to name them. Probably will miss one, but I'm going to try. Mm -hmm. So they include fish, shellfish, dairy, eggs, peanuts, tree nuts, wheat, corn, soy. Mm. I think I got them. What mm -hmm. do you think, Leanne? Yeah, I think you nailed it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so these are the foods that most commonly account for food allergies. When you have a food allergy, let's pretend you have an allergy to dairy, which affects about 4% of people. If I put one drop of milk on your tongue, that could be enough to initiate this response of your immune system, where you get not just digestive symptoms, but you could get hives, throat closing, swelling, swelling lips, scary stuff, potentially very dangerous. Flip side, let's talk about food intolerances, okay? So we're shifting gears, we're moving away from the allergy and moving towards a food intolerance. Food intolerances are far more common than food allergies. Most of what we're talking about here today are food intolerances, unless I'm specifically saying it's an allergy. A food intolerance, by definition, this is a very important point, by the way, a food intolerance does not involve the immune system. Now I paused for a second there to let that set in, because we think of these as being inflammation, but inflammation comes from the immune system. Food intolerances are sloppy digestion. Your body is struggling to process and unpack the food, and as a result of that, you are suffering symptoms as a consequence. But that is not inflammation, and it does not involve your immune system. So food allergies, going back to the food allergies with the immune system and the one drop of milk on the tongue, technically, you can heal food allergies. It's highly complicated. Even if I were an allergist, I personally would never write a book teaching you how to do that because it should be done under the guidance of a trained health professional because this is dangerous stuff. Food intolerances, if I take the person who's got terrible lactose intolerance, the number one food intolerance, and I put one drop of milk on their tongue, they have no issue. They are fine. It's the threshold. What is the amount that they're capable of drinking? Now, bad lactose intolerance may mean that they can only drink one ounce of milk. Mild lactose intolerance may mean that they can consume six ounces of milk, which is a little bit less than a serving, but they still get symptoms. But the key about the food intolerances is that this is a moving target. It changes. Your gut adapts. When you consume a food, your gut will become more efficient at processing and digesting that food. And so this line that is the threshold of how much you're actually capable of consuming when it's a food intolerance, it can be moved. And if you understand the process, you're the one who can choose to move it. And you can continue to move this line higher and higher and higher by simply challenging your gut and asking it to adapt and to accommodate, which it will, until you get to a point where that line is way above a normal amount of food consumption, 
And now you can consume that food and not even be restricted on it, which is cool. And I very much in my past have healed a lot of my own food intolerances by continuously challenging those sorts of things as well, which is really, really exciting. But before we jump into that, let's quickly talk about these food sensitivity or these food intolerance test kits that you see all over social media because they infuriate me so much. And diagnosing a food sensitivity is something that is incredibly easy, but also incredibly difficult to do when it, when it comes to, you know, the threshold that people can actually tolerate. So just first, Dr. B, these IgG antibody test kits that we see, influencers promoting left, right and center. Tell us about these. Are we wasting our money? Of course, of course, it's being promoted by influencers and you don't see Leanne Ward or Will Bolsowitz never, never. these things. <laughs> Um, and there's a reason why, which is that I just said that food intolerances do not involve your immune system. And we are measuring the immune system. And guess what? Your immune system is like shaped by your environment on all levels. So when you eat a food, any food, it is not indicative of inflammation or a negative response for your body and your immune system to recognize that food and to produce IgG antibodies. That has nothing to do with whether or not you are tolerant or intolerant of that food. So the problem is that if it's bad information, if it's unreliable, and it's put in the hands of a layperson without the proper professional to translate for them, who frankly would not order the test in the first place, like I, I wouldn't, neither would you, then it becomes dangerous because it's misinformation. It's not information, it's misinformation. They say, you are intolerant of this food, and you say, but I don't have any symptoms when I eat that food. Well, you and I, Leanne, we would pop in right there if we were in the room and we would say, if you're not having symptoms, then you're not intolerant of the food. Food intolerance is by definition, the manifestation of symptoms after a food that are unpleasant when that food is consumed in normal quantities. So this test says you're intolerant and then you cut the food out. You are scared of the food. You think that you're incapable of consuming it and you're avoiding it. Now that is not abundance. That is not joy. That is food fear. And we have created a separation between you and your food that frankly was based upon misinformation from the very beginning. That's sad. That's not the way it should be. Flip side, the test says you are not intolerant and you go, but hold up, I eat wheat and I feel horrible. And this test says that I'm not intolerant. Now I'm just totally confused. What do I do? This is the issue. If it's not reliable information. So we have to go to the gold standard. The gold standard, the tried and true approach Actually, I'm going to bring it back to the growth strategy. So G-R-O-W-T-H. We talked about G-Genesis. Let's move into the next three letters, R-O-W. Actually, I'm walking you through the gold standard approach to food intolerances, where you restrict, observe, work it back in. When you create countercurrents, when you take that light switch and you flip it off, on, off, on, and you do it in isolation, where there's not too many moving parts all at once, but there's just this one thing, I'm testing this food. Am I intolerant to wheat? Take away the wheat, see how you feel. Reintroduce the wheat, see how you feel. And when you do it in isolation like that, it's a scientific approach that allows you to actually determine whether or not you have a food intolerance to that food. And further, one of the things that I like to teach is that this is not just am I intolerant, but also how much am I capable of consuming? Because again, that is our line. We want to know what that threshold is, and then we want to move that threshold up and enhance our ability to process and digest that food. Along this path, when you get information like that, you are empowered. You understand what's happening with your body. Your gut has strengths and weaknesses, and you have identified where the weaknesses are. And now that you've figured that out, you can use that information to fix them. 
make them stronger. I love that. And I love that you talked about you need to specifically isolate what it is because if you think that you have a problem with weed, if you're going to be eating a melted cheese ham sambo every day for lunch and maybe for some of our American listeners, it's like a you know grilled cheese sandwich, it could be the cheese, it could be the oils, the butter that you're using on that, it could be the ham, it could be the bread. You really need to do that food in isolation. If you're going to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day, is it the sugar, is it the fat, or is it the actual wheat component of that food? So it's really important to do it in isolation, not as part of a you know, really a large meal, because it is really difficult to actually know what we are intolerant to. So I right. think food intolerance are those one areas where working with a professional um, will just save you probably months or even years of heartache um, to try and get to the bottom of some of these things we are actually intolerant. Yeah, that's totally true. And I, and I think that, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to accomplish with this new book is, is to try to simplify this because it is complicated and we can't change that. When things are nuanced, they are what they are. And we're going to, people like you and I, we're going to peel apart these layers of complexity. But part of our responsibility is for us to actually use our expertise to take complex topics and make them simpler for you to apply to your own life. And that's, you know, one of the things is I've always wished that I could hand my patients a you know pack of recipes like here eat this mm. for the next two weeks and that's kind of what i feel that i'm accomplishing where i know that you want to talk about some of these topics in the book there's a low fodmap and there's a low histamine protocol where i'm going to teach you the nuances but really at the end of the day it's this simple eat this way for two weeks and tell me how you feel mm. do you feel better mm. cool we're on to something. That's power. Yeah, I love that. And I just want to quickly circle back to where we were talking about the food sensitivity test kits. I want to really drill this home for our listeners. Yeah. They do not work. You are wasting your money. The IgG antibody test kits that are sold and promoted by influencers online, you are wasting your money. So please don't do them. <laughs> yeah. Save that money and take a great vacation. Literally, I'd love to go to Hawaii, <laughs> although it might not be quite as much. Yeah. But I really do think that we spend so much in this gut health and food sensitivity area. We take the pills, we do the powders, we do the test kits, we we pay all of these like shonky practitioners. And at the end of the day, we're no better off with our symptoms. So knowledge is absolutely power. And if there's one thing I wish I could get rid of when I see promoted online, it's these stupid IgG antibody test kits because we know only you are going to know what you're intolerant to those test kits and I used to see clients in my clinic all the time Dr. B that would come in and go oh yeah I can't I've had these tests done I can't have bell peppers or I can't have capsicum I can't have zucchini I can't have corn I can't have bread I can't have all of these wonderfully healthy foods I'm like, why and they're like oh because the test set well what happens if you eat this one this one we'd go through all 30 of them nothing 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 oh I really like that one it's a shame I cut it out and then we're like well, so you get no symptoms to all of these things yet this test tells you that you're intolerant to it so I think we're giving too much power to shonky companies online aren't we at the end of the day if what matters is whether or not you have symptoms from the food then why do you need the test in the first place it's very simple do you have symptoms from the food and uh it's you're right. It's a sad state of affairs. And the reality is that I, I feel like it should be illegal for these tests to be sold direct to consumer because I think that the problem is that marketing is very powerful. Very powerful. And you can create hype and you can create false narratives. And it's frankly a lie. And who's going to check them? And it's really hard because like people like you and I, we have to put in tremendous effort to try to push back against things that are so easy for people to just put it out there and say, hey, this will fix your problem. It's really hard when people with millions and millions of followers like I've seen on the internet are promoting these things because people take them as gospel. That's that's the problem when they have no you know medical or, or nutrition training behind them. I do think that we have an individual responsibility in the new world that we live in where I can assure you that if you have some sort of idea, you're not the first person to think this. And there is someone on the internet who's willing to tell you what you want to hear about that idea. 
And, you know, we've seen this in politics in the United States where, mm. uh, you know, it used to be it was just the news. And now it's which party's news are you listening to? And the, the problem is that's a confirmation bias. People are telling you what you want to hear, your own version of the facts. And that can happen in the nutrition space too. But we have to, as individual consumers, be smart enough and use the muscle between our ears to actually like ask the question, is this rational? Does this make sense? Is, the most, is this the most qualified person or the appropriate person? The quality, and I'll be the first to admit this, you can apply this to me too. The quality of the advice has nothing to do with the number of followers on Instagram. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> I'm just taking a moment to shout out this episode's sponsor, Mac Nutrition and the Mac Nutrition Universal Certification. With the MNU certification, you are qualified to be insured to practice as a nutritionist. You can get a bespoke insurance policy right here in Australia, which you can also use to work with clients globally. They have insurance policies in over 25 countries, including the US, Canada, and the UK. The MNU certification teaches you everything you need to know to get the best results with a wide range of clientele, including weight loss and muscle gain, as well as athletes. Likewise, they have modules on creating your own corporate wellness programs, working online as a coach, and provide a year's worth of business and professional mentoring to help you set up your own nutrition consultancy. You can also just use the course to improve your own knowledge around evidence-based nutrition if you like. You can find out more information at www.mac-nutritionuni.com. And as a listener of the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast, you can also get a generous 90% off the enrollment fees using the coupon code Leanne90. Enrollments for the next intake open on the 13th of July, so get in quick. Now, let's change gears a little bit, and SIBO is perhaps one of the most popular topics on the internet right now, and it is a legitimate condition, yet I think that it's being overdiagnosed by a lot of, again, unqualified health practitioners. And I've seen lots of follow my SIBO protocol, you'll be healed. Or, you know, if you've still got gut symptoms, it's definitely SIBO. So let's talk about SIBO, how we diagnose it. And it is actually a lot rarer than I think a lot of people think it is. Is that right? I rarely saw it in my clinical practice. Yeah, it totally is. I can just tell you that uh, in my clinical practice, treating people with antibiotics for this condition. By the way, it's SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth for people who are wondering. I would probably treat maybe four or five people per year out of like thousands of people that I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. And that's because I think that the issue is that if we want to make a wonderful cake, you put the ingredients together, you put it in a pan and you let it sit in the oven and you wait until it's done. You don't pull it out halfway. And the problem is that I think that we have something where the cat is out of the bag and it's half baked and we don't know enough to like, do I believe that this condition exists? Small intestine bacterial overgrowth, 100%. Is it proportional to the number of people who think that they have it? Not even close. It's a fraction of them. But the internet, which by the way, this is not like being uh, evidence-based, this is being hype-based. The internet would lead you to believe that if you have gas and bloating, the number one cause of gas and bloating has to be small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Mm -hmm. And I actually find this to be very dangerous, which is why I push back against it. Because if that is true, then the next step that you're going to take is either to take antibiotics, which are the most potent tools to actually injure and damage your microbiome, or you're going to take antimicrobials, which is basically just like taking a natural way to do the exact same thing that antibiotics do. And these people who have these problems, like gas and bloating, again, it starts with properly understanding what we're treating. That's the first step. But they have damage to their microbiome. This is why they have gas and bloating in the first place. It's indicative of an injured gut. 
and then we're going to blast it with antibiotics and somehow expect that when they bounce back from us, like basically bombing their gut, that they're going to be better. It doesn't actually make sense, but I understand that this is not the individual person's fault. They are not trained in these topics and they are quite simply just trying to feel better. They have gas and bloating and they want to know why. So let me start here. Let me put forward a couple of the things that I think about when it comes to gas and bloating. And Leanne, please jump in if there's addition, additional ones that you, because I'm sure you have a couple. Mm-hmm. So the number one cause of gas and bloating that I come across is constipation. Agreed. People think that they have small intestine bacteria overgrowth because they do a breath test. It's actually a false positive. In these people, without antibiotics, if you make them poop, the gas and bloating goes away. You don't even need it. People can have celiac disease. Celiac disease can commonly manifest with gas and bloating. That's one thing to consider. We mentioned earlier sucrose intolerance. That can cause gas and bloating. There are FODMAP intolerances. FODMAPs, fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Um, These are basically carbohydrates anywhere from a simple sugar up to chains of sugars that are almost like fiber, but they can be fermented by gut bacteria and they can cause gas and bloating. That is not necessarily small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And the number one symptom of histamine intolerance, which I believe that we're going to talk about some more, mm-hmm. is gas and bloating. And most people have never even heard of histamine intolerance or know really anything about it. So we have all of these different things. It really starts with understanding what we're treating. Do I diagnose some people with small intestine bacterial overgrowth? Yes. But it is not the first test. It is certainly one of the last because the last thing that I want to do is to take a person with a damaged gut and feed them more antibiotics and make their gut injury worse. Yeah, it's, gut health is a very easy topic, but also a very, very complicated topic when we're talking about intolerances and food sensitivities. But I feel like the internet makes it 10 times more complicated than it potentially should be. <laughs> because what we need is we need reliable sources of truth. If I go to the mechanic, I know nothing about cars. I'm a doctor. I'm not a car guy. If I go to the mechanic, he could literally tell me anything. And I'm just going to have to say, yes, here's my credit card. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. But it is our responsibility. It is my responsibility to ensure that this is a reputable mechanic, not someone who's ripping people off. When it comes to your health, you are the steward of your own health. You need to be an empowered patient. You need to sniff out the BS when it exists. You need to be smart enough to identify qualified health professionals that you believe are giving you an honest answer. And I think the hardest part of that is for consumers to know what is a qualified health professional? Because let's be honest, there are a lot of quote unquote, natural health practitioners online and out there who don't use science and evidence-based to guide their practice. And they're the ones putting people on overly restricted diets. Here, take a million supplements, cut out gluten, cut out sugar, cut out dairy, cut out all of these things, take a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand dollars worth of supplements. And guess what? You're no better off than where you started. So it's difficult to know because people want to go the natural approach. People want to go the, you know, unmedicated sort of down that natural therapy route. But they also don't understand that a lot of doctors and dietitians can be very natural as well, but also be evidence-based. Like we don't want to put people on medications for no good reason. We don't want to give people invasive tests like colonoscopies for no good reason, but there is a time and a place for modern medicine alongside natural therapies. But I think that people think that they're in complete isolation to each other. You can only do one. Yeah, I completely agree. I think I don't understand why it has to be polarized like that. That ultimately, if it's my choice for my for myself, I want the best of preventative medicine. I want the best of diet and lifestyle. These choices, these ways to empower my health, to make my body as strong as possible and capable of amazing things. But at the same time, when I get sick, I'm, I, I want a good healthcare team to support me and to give me what I need. And that includes 21st century 
modern healthcare tools that are powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't see any reason why we would ignore that. We don't want to go back to 100 years ago in terms of our health. We don't want to ignore these things. I'm quite sure that most of us, if we get a bad infection, we're going to ask for the penicillin. And penicillin didn't exist you know, until like the 1940s. So I completely agree with you, Ian. Yeah, that's the thing. Like we don't want to give people antibiotics, but there is a time and a place and sometimes antibiotics can save your life. Oh, and it's not that we're here saying, oh, don't take the antibiotics. We're here saying, get the proper testing, find the proper diagnosis and work with the proper health professional. I think they're probably the three key messages we're really trying to drive home to our listeners, aren't we? Oh, totally. And and I think that, you know, what you're bringing forward is like a couple of examples where if a person is a zealot about things, where it has to be an all or nothing thing, that's not being real. Right, these are nuanced topics. Like even myself, uh, I have I'm on a completely plant based diet that works great for me. I'm not saying I'm not here. If you actually read my books, that's not what I'm saying to do. I'm saying find what works for you. So we need to acknowledge the nuance. And the other thing is, here's one of the tricks. I get a lot of messages from people who ask me, "Is this true?" Like on the internet, like they'll see some crazy post. Is this true? Mm. And my answer, I'm just going to tell you guys right now, is always the same. Ask them for a study. You don't need to come to me and ask me if it's true. Ask them for a study. And 95% chance they don't have anything. And then you know, it's nonsense. Yeah. And the worst thing I find about the natural health sort of therapy field, they all just copy each other. And they're like, where did you hear that? Oh, I heard that from from another, you know, big Instagram influence who has a health natural health page. And it's like, again, where's the evidence? Where is the research? They're just all saying the same thing. And because they make the most noise, yeah, people people believe them. And it's, it's very frustrating, particularly for people who are genuinely unwell and will do anything to actually heal their symptoms. Well, because those people, so unfortunately, they become the victims, which sucks. Because these are the people that they're just trying to feel better. And actually, something that I should say, whether you eat the way that I recommend or you don't eat the way that I recommend, I just want people to know that I respect a person no matter what, no matter what they're choosing when they're just trying to do their best and they're just trying to find some sort of way to feel better. Like I, I respect that person. They're trying. And I think that the issue is that there's a responsibility for people like you and I to step forward with high quality information that they can apply to their life and, and actually feel those results and see those results and know that they're actually getting better. Couldn't agree more. And so let's talk about histamine intolerance, because again, we're here to genuinely help people. We're not here to, you know, push people into this product or make a million dollars of this thing or buy out this thing. We're here to genuinely give people enough knowledge and power to empower them to go, all right, this is what I think I need to do. And this is how I'm actually going to heal myself and get help. So histamine intolerances is one of those newer newer things. I must admit, I really don't know much about it. So I was really excited to see that in your book. And I'd love for you to tell our listeners, what is histamine intolerance and how do we know if we potentially have one and how many, you know, what percentage of the population actually do? Is it common or is it incredibly rare? There's so much that we don't know about this topic, but the reason that I'm bringing it forward is because I think that this is going to change some people's lives. I think that this is going to help people. And I think that when you have those results, they are undeniable. If you feel better and it enhances your life, it is undeniable. And so the issue with histamine intolerance, before I even jump into what it really is, is I just want to paint the picture of why this is such a challenge. There is no blood test for histamine intolerance. There is no imaging test or CAT scan for histamine intolerance. There's no breath test for histamine intolerance. In order to properly know whether or not you have histamine intolerance, you have to consume a low histamine diet for two weeks. No doctor in the history of healthcare has ever handed their patient recipes before. How could you possibly even know whether or not you have histamine intolerance if the doctor really doesn't have a way to accomplish this? Mm. Because they don't have a test. The test is to eat low histamine and see that you have improvement. But there is no doubt that histamine intolerance exists. 
Histamine is a part of our body. We all have it. It's not meant to be vilified. When our body is healthy and in balance, there's histamine there. I have histamine inside of me right now. So do you, Leanne. So does the listener at home. And histamine interacts as a signaling molecule with receptors in our brain, in our blood vessels, in our gut, having different effects in different places. But like anything, when histamine is out of balance, you can actually manifest symptoms that you don't want. Histamine can fall out of balance in a person who has a damaged gut. Because they have a damaged gut, they are more prone to histamine intolerance, meaning that they can struggle with histamine. And then the source becomes their diet. So they're prone, they're vulnerable, and then they have an excessive amount of histamine in their diet, and suddenly they manifest symptoms. I mentioned earlier, I'll repeat it again, the number one symptom of histamine intolerance is gas and bloating. So if you have gas and bloating and you don't know what's causing it, this needs to be on the table as one of the possibilities that you're considering. Like this should be, from my perspective, before SIBO, before small intestine bacterial overgrowth, because if we diagnose you with small intestine bacterial overgrowth, then we're going to treat you with antibiotics. We're trying to avoid that. Some people need it, but we're trying to avoid that. So this gives you an alternative option that you can work on first. Mm -hmm. Histamine is found in all food. There's no such thing as a zero histamine diet. That's not possible. The reason that histamine is in all food is because it's produced by microbes. All food has microbes, all of them. We just can't see them. And they're there and they're working and they're changing the food. Food has a life cycle. Take spinach leaves and it's like they start off as a seed and then they sprout and they grow and they reach up to the sun and they grow bigger. And eventually we harvest them and we consume them. But what if we don't harvest and consume them? And then eventually they would brown and they would decompose and they turn back in the soil. And that is the circle of life. And that, that is all initiated by microbes. These microbes on, for example, spinach, they will transform one of the amino acids, histidine, into histamine. So just like you have histamine in your body, you can have histamine in your diet. And this outside input of histamine that you're consuming can actually put your body in a position where it's more histamine than what you need. And so you'll manifest things like beyond gas and bloating, you could have a headache migraine, runny nose. Like think about you have a meal and all of a sudden your nose starts running, sinus congestion, sore throat, uh, shortness of breath, rapid heart rate, lightheadedness, weakness, fatigue, and of course, digestive symptoms beyond just gas and bloating. The foods, when I mention these, like this is not meant for you to memorize the list. Instead, what I would encourage people at home to do is just like these uh, symptoms that I just mentioned. If you need to go back and listen to that list again and ask yourself the question, do I have two or more of these symptoms? And if the answer is yes, then it is possible that histamine intolerance is an issue for you. And then we come to the food. When I mention these foods, it's not to memorize the list. It's instead to ask the question, have you noticed that specific foods are causing specific symptoms? By the way, I should mention this. I always forget the skin. So it's an important one in histamine intolerance. You can get flushing, you can get hives, you could get a rash, almost like a food allergy. So anyway, the classic food for histamine intolerance are fermented foods. This is actually a broader category than people may realize. Mm. Vinegar are fermented foods, alcohol, chocolate. So we need to be conscious because the microbes that are transforming the food are making histamine in the process. In the um, animal product world, the number one is fish. Fish has higher levels of this histidine and more microbes, and they, so they're producing more histamine on the fish. And then in the plant-based world, there's four specific plants that people need to be conscious of. Spinach, eggplant, tomatoes, and avocados. So these are the foods. Now, look, this can all sound like super overwhelming and complicated, but let me make this super simple. Do you have two or more of the symptoms? If the answer is yes, then it may be useful to try a low histamine diet. 
In the book, I have 26 recipes that are low histamine. So you quite simply eat this way for two weeks. This is the test. I mean, you're just eating food. The food tastes good. But in the process of doing that, you're actually empowering yourself with information where it's like, dang, during these two weeks, my gas and bloating went away. I no longer had a rash and the headaches got better. Well, that would be life-changing for people. So you can see, Leanne, the bottom line is that histamine intolerance, the reason why it's been hard to bring to prime time is the challenge in actually making a diagnosis where you have to reduce your histamine intake. And we don't really have good data on how common this is. But what I do know is that this is real. This chapter that I wrote had 90 references. It's the most references of any chapter in the, in the book. And that there are people right now who are listening to this, who are suffering with these symptoms, that if they did a low histamine diet, they would be empowered with information to help them understand their specific issue. And then you're not just like stuck with this, by the way, just like every other food intolerance, there are strategies that you can take to overcome and heal your gut. Actually, just thinking about histamine intolerances, I remember there was a, a big story in Bali where an Australian mum and her daughter unfortunately passed away from eating um, mahi-mahi in Bali. So the type of fish, it actually had extremely high levels of histamine and they both had asthma as their background as well. Um, and so they actually, um, they unfortunately died by the time the ambulance got there, they weren't able to save them. So that was a really tragic case of, um, I would say, probably more of a histamine allergy, do you think, or just a really, really extreme case of histamine intolerance? Well, there's so histamine intolerance is more like a chronic health issue where you manifest, you know, low grade to moderate grade symptoms and not necessarily acute, intense, and severe all at once. Mm. But there's there's this um, second form of this called scombroid poisoning, mm -hmm. and scombroid poisoning happens when people eat bad fish, and it's not common, but it can manifest with what you're describing, and it's just like exponentially worse. It's more intense because the fish is just like so high in histamine that it just overwhelms your body all at once. It's not very common. Mm, mm. And they were saying that their background as asthmatics was one of the reasons that it was so severe in these two in these two people. Yeah, it was a bad combination because it wasn't just the histamine intolerance. It was the combination of histamine intolerance and a person with bad asthma. Yeah, devastating. Um, and then the other one I was thinking of is I've had a couple of friends in the past who, when they drink alcohol, they get very flushed and they, you know, they've just stopped doing that. And that would probably be the perfect example of where somebody may have a histamine intolerance. I've yeah. actually had a few people who say to me, you know, healthy foods, but I feel like a histamine intolerance tolerances, the big indicative is probably the headaches and the skin, because I do feel like gas and bloating can be just so many gut health conditions. And as we mentioned, the biggest one is just constipation or just having a really poor quality diet. So if your number one symptoms are gas and bloating, I wouldn't jump to histamine intolerance, as I'm sure you, you probably wouldn't either. Oh, totally. Definitely things like we want to clean up the diet first. We want to add more fiber, add more fluid, do some physical activity. There's certain oh. things that we want to do for gas and bloating first. But if your number one symptoms are the skin conditions, rashes, hives, flushed cheeks, they're probably you know, more the, the high symptoms of histamine intolerances, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And I think, I think it's a matter of having this on the table as a possibility. So mm. I completely agree with you. I would not move this into the top one, two, or three. In fact, you know, to me, constipation would be number one and I would be worried about celiac disease too. And I would think about sucrose intolerance three. Um, I would think about FODMAP intolerance four. And then I would start to move towards histamine intolerance. But if you, it's like you said, Leanne, if you have extra intestinal symptoms, meaning that it's not just the gas and bloating, but it's the gas and bloating in combination with the headaches or the runny nose or the rash, flushing hives, then that's where you start to really start to move in this direction, perhaps a little bit earlier. Mm, yeah, I love that. Um, and then wrapping up this podcast, Dr. B, because I know you're a very busy man and you have things to do. Um, I really wanted to ask you about training your gut and improving things like intolerances, because I know that you and I together have talked about previously in episodes 
your gut is like a muscle. So can you just let our listeners know a little bit more about that and how we actually can improve our intolerances long-term? Because a lot of things that people are intolerant to are actually wonderfully healthy foods. And I myself, you know, I still, I've done so much work on my gut health, but legumes is one of those areas where I can have a little, but you know, I still can't, I still can't have a lot. So it's one of the things I'm continuously working on, whereas a lot of my other intolerances aren't even there anymore. You know, things like onion and garlic, I can have tons of that and I don't suffer with that anymore. My lactose intolerance has gotten a lot better. Even wheat, I I can tolerate, you know, a few slices of good quality sort of wheat bread um, and I'm absolutely okay these days. So can we let our listeners know why we want to think about our gut as a muscle um, and how we can sort of flex that and get that stronger over time? Yeah, this is actually a perfect lead in. So, you know, the growth strategy, again, G-R-O-W, Genesis, Restrict, Observe, Work It Back In, and then T stands for Train Your Gut. So once you know where the weaknesses within your gut exist, we all have weaknesses. And you just described a couple of them, Leanne. You mentioned wheat, you mentioned legumes, you mentioned uh, dairy, and actually those are all FODMAPs. Mm -hmm. So you know it would be almost fair to call it a FODMAP intolerance, but under this umbrella of FODMAPs, we can get more specific. We can, as you have, isolate it down to the specific types of foods that cause us trouble. And if we line up legumes, let's take it, let's say we're going to take on that one, right? We want to train our gut. It starts here, your body, not just your gut. Your body is adaptable in an intensely powerful way. This is, I think, we in my 41st podcast for this book. Wow. And I keep getting better because, well, I, I, this is not to sound cocky, but I feel like I get into a better flow because it's practice. Mm-hmm. Practice makes us better. Mm-hmm. Practice makes us stronger. If we want to run, like Leanne, you, you're very into fitness. Do you like to run or what kind of exercise do you enjoy? Talk to me. I'm not a runner. <laughs> I enjoy walking and I love I love getting into the gym and lifting some weights. That's sort of where, where my joy and happiness comes from, from fitness. Okay, cool. So you don't wake up a bodybuilder. No one was born that way. Arnold Schwarzenegger was not born that way. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger went to the gym and he challenged himself. And it was a certain amount of weight that was just beyond what he was capable of doing. And that challenge actually made his body rise to the challenge and grow stronger. And it was adapting. His body was adapting to the demands that you have made. If we become runners, I'm not a runner either, but like, let's pretend we're talking about Rich Roll, right? Rich Roll runs 100 mile ultra marathons. How does a person do that? Well, you certainly don't wake up and just do that. You prepare your body for this. And when we run, the muscles change, but it's not just the muscles. Your heart changes. Your heart becomes more efficient at squeezing. And so each stroke of the heart actually gets more blood out which actually allows the runner to have a slower heart rate, which is why many runners, when they're at rest, their heart rate is like 40 and doctors freak out. Oh my gosh, why is it so (laughs) slow? It's because they have a super efficient heart. Their lungs change too. Their lungs actually become more expansive, more capable of taking in more air, mobilizing oxygen. So it's not even just the muscles changing. The lungs are changing. The heart is changing. Guess what? When we exercise, the gut is changing too. Your gut is adaptable. The circumstances in your life, the environment that you have, the challenges that you face, your gut is going to change with that. And when you take legumes, for example, that you struggle with and you introduce legumes and just like you know Arnold Schwarzenegger in the gym, you introduce them incrementally, slowly increasing the challenge over the course of time. And with each increase, your gut becomes stronger. It becomes more capable of breaking down the legumes. It becomes more efficient with digestion and you are adding increased functionality. And as you do this and you keep slowly stepping up, what you discover is that you become increasingly capable of processing and digesting these foods that you could not eat before 
And eventually you discover that the food that you were scared of because it used to cause you symptoms, you're not actually even thinking about it anymore. You're just enjoying the food. That's where we want people to be. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And then finally, Dr. B, for our listeners at home, what would be your top piece of advice for anyone at home suffering from gut complaints or intolerances or symptoms? If you had one sort of take-home message that you wanted everyone to be aware of or know, what would that be? It's a good question, Leanne. I think what I would say is that I want people to understand that there are no shortcuts. Um, Don't look for quick, cheap fixes, fads, or like, hey, if you just do this fasting protocol, it's going to fix all your problems. It's not true. I instead believe that we need to make small, sensible, consistent choices that we're able to maintain over the course of time. And when we do that, when we like continually make these small choices time and time again, you do that enough and ultimately it becomes a habit. And when you build healthy habits, you are basically creating dividends. Like you are putting interest in the bank because you're not even thinking about your health anymore. You're just living. It's a lifestyle. And this lifestyle is actually healing you and supporting you and making you the best version of yourself. So my advice is stop looking for quick fixes or shortcuts or 30-day things and instead invest into understanding what are those small choices and make the decision for what works for you in your own life that brings you happiness, that brings you joy. What are those small changes that you're willing to make and actually commit to and do them consistently and come back and do it again tomorrow? That's what I would recommend. Mm, I love that. And my literally mantra for life and on this potty and throughout my socials is just consistency. Like we just have to do a little bit, but we have to do that little bit consistently every single day or every single week. Because if not, if we're going to go all or nothing, then we're just going to fall off the wagon and we're never really going to see that change, are we? Exactly. Totally agree. Wonderful. And then Dr. V, you've got a new book coming. I read Fiberfield. I love it. Tell us uh, about the new one. Yeah. So I ended up alluding to this book quite a bit in the podcast, actually, but it's called The Fiberfields Cookbook. I mean, it kind of is a cookbook, but it's kind of not. There are 125 recipes. It's in full color. These are new recipes. You won't find them in Fiber Fueled for the most part, except for like two. But I want people to understand where this came from. Fiber Fueled was crazy. It was New York Times bestseller. Sold 200,000 copies. A ton of attention came my way. It's quite overwhelming, to be totally honest. I'm just one human. I do my best. (laughs) But many people would say to me, Dr. B, like I'm trying to eat the way that you're describing and I'm struggling. And so I needed a way to help people to overcome those food intolerances and basically to find what works for them on their own personal gut health journey. Not like what I would eat, but instead, what do you want to eat that can enhance and further your gut health? And so this book to me is almost like I'm giving you the tools. It's not just for people with food intolerances, although it does have these two food protocols that we've been talking about. But it's also for people that just want healthier guts. Frankly, we all should want to have healthier guts because this is so important to our health. So the book is built on the principles of fiber fueled. It teaches you how to eat more with more diversity to get more plant points in your diet. I teach you how to sprout. I teach you how to ferment. I teach you how to make sourdough bread. Uh, Leanne, there there was a new study since um, the last time that I came on the show. It was about two years ago. New study out of Stanford University. Um, Professors Christopher Gardner, who's actually a friend of mine, uh, Justin Sonnenberg, actually also a friend of mine, he, he supported Fiber Fueled and, um, and his partner, Erica Sonnenberg, they had people who were not eating fermented food introduce fermented food on a daily basis. So now fermented food is a very broad category. Uh, it includes things like um, sauerkraut, fermented vegetables, miso, tempeh, kombucha, but it also includes yogurt and uh, kefir. So in this study, people added fermented food into their diet on a daily basis. 
And over the course of 10 weeks, they actually saw that they increased the diversity within their microbiome, which is a measure of health, and simultaneously reduced measures of inflammation. So people should go back and listen to our former episodes. But one of the messages from those episodes was to eat in variety, get as many different varieties of plants as possible. You'll find that concept in this cookbook. But here's this new data that's less than a year old showing us that you can enhance the health of your gut microbiome by adding fermented food that you're not eating. And I want to teach you how to do that too. So I want to basically empower people with the tools that they need to find better health and hopefully end up in a place where it's like you're on your own winding path and I'm kind of there holding your hand, helping you find what works for you. And then one day you emerge from the forest and we're all there together and we're celebrating, we're having fun and we're finding great joy in our food. Like that's where I want us to be. I love it. I love it. So good. And where can we find the book, Dr. B? Uh, the, so the book is going to be available through the traditional booksellers. Now, I guess a couple things I should say. The book comes out in Australia in July. Mm -hmm. So depending on when this is released. Um, you can also get the digital version and I actually am a huge fan of the audiobook. So this time around, I'm actually, I'm not reading the whole book, but I'm reading a lot more. And I also wanted to add extra value. And so I did something like I was not paid to do this. I just felt compelled to do this. There's 11 chapters in the book. And at the end of every single one of the 11 chapters, I pop in, I want you to know that I'm there with you. So I pop in and I give you my key takeaways from that chapter. So, and that's something that you'll only find in the audiobook. So if you don't want to wait until July, if you want to grab the audiobook, you will get all the recipes, you will get the photography, they give it to you in a PDF, but then you also get this bonus material that you'll only find in the audiobook, which I think is a cool option. Yeah, awesome. So that's available now. The the uh, audiobook and the digital copy in Australia will be available on May 17th, and then the print copy will be available in July. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. B, so much for, again, blessing us with all of your wisdom. Um, I'm sure the listeners learned so much. I'm sure people were furiously taking notes. I always get the feedback from my podcast that people like to listen to me on the treadmill or when they're in the car, but they say you have guests on who offer so much value that I always have to stop what I'm doing so I can grab my notebook in and write things down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for our listeners at home and for myself as well for, um, for all of your wisdom today. And just finally, where can we follow you if we're not already on Instagram and find you on your website? So you can find me at my website, theplantfedgut.com. Uh, I have an email list that I'm very proud of. Sometimes new research comes out. I want to break it down. I can't do it in 100 characters on Instagram. So I'll send an email out to my list. So for people who are interested in what I'm talking about here, join the list um, so you can be a part of the community. Um, you'll find me on Instagram and Facebook as The Gut Health MD. And, um, and I have a course that I run. I'm starting it up this summertime. So it's something for people who are interested in taking a deeper dive. You can check that out as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. V. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Leanne.